of this particular sermon series. It's not meant to say, Elm Grove's got all these problems, or your church, wherever you may be, has got all these problems, and you need to go and fix them. No, no, no. It's just a check. It's just a, a let's, let's take a pit stop, and let's be sure that we are doing things God's way. I really believe that as we ramp up toward August, which is the beginning of a new school year and a new church year for us, that we have some incredible opportunities in front of us and some incredible decisions to be made and so on, as every church does. And I want us to be sure that we are doing things God's way. All right. So that's the idea behind this series is to make sure that we're doing that. Now, this morning, you see on the little title there, it's Church Building 101. Now, it's not just about the church building, but it's about building a great church. I get lots of different emails. I subscribe to different folks and so on. I get emails, and so many of them are telling you, hey, you know, Pastor, here's how you can build a great church. Here are the things that you need to be doing. And it's something different every week. It's amazing. They come up with different things every week on how to build a great church. Somebody gets paid to sit around and think of the next seven things that you need to do in order to build the greatest church that the world has ever seen. There are lots of opinions. Some will focus on the building itself. Some will tell you that you must have a particular kind of building if you want to reach the kind of person who is not coming to church these days. They might tell you in some cases that the style of the building that we have here is not what it's going to take to reach today's generation of people, the millennial generation who identify mainly as none when they're asked what kind of religion they have. They may may tell you that the, the tradition style, which is, and I know some of you, for some of you, this is radical. We changed the sage about two years ago. It's radical. You're still getting over it. I get it. But some would say this traditional style of building is not what it's going to take. Others would tell you that that those same folks really resonate with the traditional style of building. There's something peaceful about it. There's something constant about it. And then they really love that. So I have no idea what kind of style of building we need. I'll just tell you that. I have no idea at all. Because I got emails and one of them says you need to build a contemporary style. And the other says stick with what you got because people don't care. So I have no idea. Some will tell you that you need certain types of programs. That you must do these certain things at these certain times in these certain ways in order to attract and to reach new generations of people. And those programs are all over the place. They say you've got to come up with something new all the time. Well, just stick with what you have because you're good at that and whatever. I, so I don't know really what kind of programs we need. Some will tell you that you need a certain style of music. That you need to make sure that your music is up to date. And then others will tell you, no, they know this, this generation really kind of likes that old constant kind of style that the church has always had and it's something different. So I don't really know what kind of music we need, quite honestly. Some will tell you that you need to be in a particular location. They will tell you that you need to be make sure that you are on a major thoroughfare, as, as busy a road as you can find, and that's where you put your church, in a major metropolitan area. And then others will say that the small rural church is making a comeback. So I have no idea where we need to be as far as location, just so you know, no clue. Now others will tell you that you need a certain number of staff members. We, we have some, some staff members here. I'm the only full-time staff member. Clint Gentry, of course, our youth minister. He's a part-time youth minister, which is full-time work for part-time pay, right? And Andrew uh, McClure, who, who you saw earlier, he's our, our part-time children's minister. Again, full-time work, part-time pay. That's just the way that goes. If you've ever worked in part-time work, you know how that goes. And some will tell you that you need lots and lots of staff members. Others will say, well, don't spend all your money on personnel because you need to put it in the ministry. I don't have any clue how we need to staff our church. So all of that stuff that I get, people tell you, here's what you need to be doing to build the great church. Church building 101, I'll just tell you, I have no clue about any of that stuff. There are some things to consider, certainly. We need to make sure that our building is what it needs to be, and staffing and music and all the stuff. We, we, we try to keep an eye on that. But 
I really believe that we are missing the point if we believe that in and of themselves, those things build a great church. We can have the most impressive building. I grew up in a church that had a really impressive building. It was nice. My parents all pay for it. It was really nice. I've been to churches that have great programs and music and a perfect location and lots of staff members and so on. And those things are not bad in and of themselves. But I really believe that we are missing a point if we think that in and of themselves, just a better, bigger building, just different kind of music, just more staff members, just a new program. If just those things are present, we will not build a great church. So how do we really build a great church? Because if church matters to us, which it does, uh, if this church matters to us, which I believe for many of you here it does, how do we make it great? I'll just tell you, I don't believe there's any secret to it. I'm not going to reveal something to you today that I sat in my office this week and came up with. But I thought, you know what, I, man, this is, they're going to be really impressed. They, I've been there nine years so far. They th- they're not sure about me. I'm not, you know, but I'm really going to impress them this week. It's going to be incredible. You all just sit back and watch because look how smart I am. That's not what I came up with this week in my office. Because that wouldn't fool any of you, right? You know that. You know better than that by now. There's no formula. I don't think there's any new thing to discover. I really think that all we need to do in order to build a great church or for you to be sent back to wherever church that you might attend on a regular basis, for you to help build a great church there, I really believe that all we need to do is go back to the one who started the church and rediscover his vision for the church. And his name, by the way, is not Brad. His name is Jesus. It's real popular today in pastoral circles. I know maybe you don't run in these circles. I try not to, but by nature of my job, I have to sometimes. I got to be around pastors sometimes the way it is. They like to talk about what they call casting vision. Casting vision, which means that they're going to sit in their office. This is my cynical view. They're going to sit in their office, and and I don't know what they do. They've got some burning some incense, and they're meditating. I don't know what they do, but they try to hear from God in a very special way, as if the burning bush is sitting there in their office, and they walk upon it, and they know, and God is going to speak to them in a way that He's not spoken to anybody else throughout history. And all of a sudden, they're going to emerge from their office and have this incredible vision for the church. And they will stand up on a Sunday morning and they will say, let me tell you what God has told me. Here's the vision for this church. And they'll cast it out to everybody. And they expect, naturally so, they were at the burning bush. They expect that everyone will get on board with this incredible vision that they got from the incense and the smoke and all the stuff. And then the church is going to be great. I've seen it happen. At least I've seen people try that before. Maybe not the incense. I made that up. But, but, I, you know, but I've seen them try that. And pastors like to talk about it. We have cool titles now for pastors. And I'm going to try to work a better title at some point. Right now my title is just pastor. I need like pastor of something. And so I've seen the title, Pastor for Preaching and Vision. Okay, so just for now on, you, you guys can call me the pastor of preaching. I'm just joking. Anyway, that stuff is so bizarre to me. Do you know why? Because I don't think we need to kind of hear from something new today. I don't think that I need to sit in my office and come up with something and then present it to you and hope that you all get on board so that we can have a great church. Because I'll be honest with you, my vision for Elm Grove, my vision for Elm Grove, and I had a guy once who, who, who used to attend here, he told me, he said, Preacher, you need to stand up on Sunday morning and just tell everybody your vision for the church. Okay. Uh... Okay, uh, next week comes back to me. Now, now, I don't think that's good. I don't do that. Don't do that. You know, I'm not sure. Here, I'll tell you. Here, you want to know, here, what, what does a pastor have in mind for Elm Grove? As cliche as it may sound, 
my vision for our church is very simple, that we would love and follow Jesus, period. And I don't mean that as a cliche, and I, don't, I, don't, I really don't mean it for effect, but that, that's all I got. I just want you to know. I went to seminary for a long time. I got a doctorate for crying out loud. That's all I got. That we would love and follow Jesus. All that school, we paid lots of money for that stuff. All the school, and that's all I got for you, is that we would love and follow Jesus. That's the vision for the church. That's it. And if we do that, I am convinced, naively maybe in some cases, I guess, but I am convinced that if we will do that, if we individually and collectively will love and follow Jesus, the rest will take care of itself. I'm really convinced of that. And so some of you may say, why didn't he stand up and just say, here's the way it is? Because that's all I got. That's what I think and believe in right there is that we would love and follow Jesus. So this morning, we're going to unfold in the next 20 minutes or so. We're going to unfold what I really believe in very strongly that Jesus has laid out for us, the true mission and vision of the church. And we just need to get on board with that and love and follow him and the rest of it will take care of itself. If you got a Bible handy, and I hope you do. I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 16, and you'll see where I'm getting all this stuff from. We're going to be in Matthew 16, and then we're going to go from there sort of as a secondary, uh, not really secondary, but a second point today. We're going to look at Matthew 28, which I really believe builds off of Matthew 16. And so if you've got a Bible, Matthew's the first book in the New Testament. Go to Matthew, look at chapter 16, and then maybe flip over, hold a place in Matthew 28. Matthew chapter 16, Matthew... 28. Let's look in verse 13 to begin with in Matthew 16, because this sets up all that we've been talking about so far. This is the idea of the undefeated church, Jesus, his church, and so on. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? He's asking, who, 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 what's the word on the street? Who do people say that I am? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, talking to his disciples, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, he's speaking for the group here. Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus responded, Simon, son of Jonah, you are blessed because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. And I also say that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the forces of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth is already bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth is already loosed in heaven. And he gave the disciples orders to tell no one that he was the Messiah. Now, so far in this series, we've looked at the first part of this little passage of Scripture. We looked at what do we believe about Jesus. That's what he was asking them. Who do you say that I am? So a couple weeks ago, that's what we looked at. Last week, we looked at the fact that Jesus looked at Peter when Peter answered in the affirmative, the right answer, and, and he said, you're going to be one of the leaders of my church. And so we looked at what is the role of the pastor and what is the role of the congregation and how does that relationship fit together? That's what we looked at last week. This week, we get to the part in verse 18, look what he says, on this rock, what? I will build what? My church. He tells Peter, you're going to be instrumental in, in, in this church thing, but what does Jesus say about it? I, he says, will build my church. Now, there are some implications here. There are some things that I want to kind of pick apart, and then we'll explain a little bit more. Three implications to give you. You can see them there on your outline. I would encourage you to fill in, take some notes, and so on. Go back and study this. Let the Lord work on your heart all week with it. Three implications to give you. First of all, when Jesus said this, we understand that the church is built by Jesus. The church is built by Jesus. So all the emails that I get, all the books that I've read, 
all the seminars that I've been to, all the things that I could stand up and put in, a, in an outline for you is not inherently wrong, but it is Jesus who builds the church. And he builds the church not on our building or on our programs or on our staff, but he builds the church on the saved souls of sinners. That's how he builds the church. When sinners are saved from the wrath of God, changed forever by the power of the cross and the resurrection, that's how Jesus builds the church. Jesus does not build the church by just trying to get a bunch of people there, but as my home church pastor said, with a stick of dynamite and a pizza party. Boy, all kinds of crazy stuff. He builds the church by saving souls. That's what he does. That is the foundation. So it is built by him. He is the architect, he is the contractor, and he is the carpenter. He builds it all. None of us build the church. None of us. I work here, but I don't build the church. Jesus builds the church. None of us are irreplaceable. I've told you before, every once in a while I get to thinking, oh, what would Elm Grove do without me? You know what you'd do without me? You'd hire a new pastor. That's what you'd do without me. You'd just get somebody else. Well, who was that guy? I, don't know, I forgot his name. Well, I'll leave my name tag up here so you remember who I am. But you would get a new pastor, wouldn't you? That's just the way it is. None of us are irreplaceable. And none of us are really that important. Jesus builds the church. And it is a church that he builds. People, the word church there really literally means a group of called out people. Called out of what? Called out of the world to be the people of God gathered together here in this time. So our identity isn't folks who just have some common interests. You know, we don't gather together today because we've got common interests and we sort of like the same things. And, you know, if we were honest, we'd probably go around and we'd find that we don't have that much common interest. And we're not even a group of people who just share some common values and beliefs. We are a group of people who share an identity in Jesus Christ as people who have been saved from the wrath of God and forever changed by the Holy Spirit. That is our common identity. And that is what makes us a church. So we first have in common that that's what we've been changed. So the church is built by Jesus. Secondly, because the church is built by Jesus, the church belongs to Jesus. He says what? I will build my church, he says. It's his. He builds it so it belongs to him. Now, you turn that around, who doesn't the church belong to? Me, you, anybody else, anybody that's gone before us, anybody that will come after us. We don't own the church. What? We are the church. So we don't own this thing. So it's not mine. And it's a major shift in thinking for a lot of people. Because we do have certain things we have to do here, right? We have to be stewards of our church. And you may serve in a particular role. We've got trustees and deacons and church council and Sunday school teachers and VBS workers and different. And it's real easy, I'll say from experience, to believe that if you're heavily involved with the church, that you own part of the church. That it's yours. What do we refer to it as? My church, right? Now, there's something important about that. We want to take some, some legitimate ownership of the fact this is where I belong, but it does not belong to me. If we're just managing something for someone else, like we are with this church, then that'll change the way we operate. So the church belongs to Jesus. And, and then because the church is built by Jesus, and because it belongs to Jesus, the church is accountable to Jesus. We answer to Him. We do. Right now, right now, we answer to Jesus. 
for this Elm Grove Baptist Church. We answer to Him. We don't answer to our traditions. We don't answer to our habits. We don't answer to our rituals. And we don't answer to our church ancestors as much as we love them. We answer to Jesus. I'll say this, and I've joked with people before. Somebody said, well, one day you're going to write a book about being a pastor. And I said, yeah, it's called Don't Dance Around Dead People. That's my, my book. He said, what? You know what? Isn't it true? Isn't it true that maybe it's not just people, but it's the things of the past that we can dance around and we say, oh, it keeps us from going forward into the future. Let me just tell you this. I have a great vision. And Eddie Clyde is... Did Eddie Clyde leave? Where is he at? He's over here. He moved. Oh, he's over here. Eddie Clyde's talked about this before. It's going to be incredible one day across the street in that cemetery. When the Lord Jesus returns, the sound of the trumpet, and all those folks are believers in Jesus, and so many of them, family members and friends and loved ones, as so many of you here, they jump out of those graves to meet the Lord in the sky. Do you know what they're doing in the meantime? They ain't worried about whether we do things the way that they wanted us to do things. You know what they're doing? They're worshiping Jesus right now. You know what they would say to us? And I promise you this. I'm not making this stuff up because I've talked to any of them. I ain't that kind of guy, right? But, but, but you know what? You know what they would say to us? If they could speak to us right now, they would say, Why are you worried about us? We're with Jesus. Reach other people for Jesus. Don't worry about us. We're with him. And you know, one day I hope and pray that if the Lord leaves me here until I retire or die, do you know what I hope this church will do is not dance around me and how did Brad do it and what would Brad say, but what did Jesus want for this church? That's my prayer. We answer to him. That's a heavy, heavy thing. We answer to him. So what do we do? If all that is true, that it's built by Jesus, belongs to Jesus, and we are accountable to Jesus, what do we do? I think it unfolds a little bit. I told you to hold your place in Matthew 28. Turn over there. I think it unfolds here as Jesus is about to ascend into heaven after his earthly work is done. He is going to ascend into heaven, later send the Holy Spirit to empower the church and indwell believers. And he gives some final instructions way over at the end of the book of Matthew. If you look in verse 16 of Matthew chapter 28, the very last chapter in Matthew, look at what it says. The 11 disciples, of course Judas is gone here, the 11 disciples traveled to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. Which is one of the most ridiculous verses in all of the Bible. These dudes had seen Jesus be crucified, risen from the dead, walk through walls and stuff like that. And some doubt it. Anyway, then Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, or lo, it says in the, in the King James, I am with you always to the very end of the age. My home church pastor used to joke. And he would say, I have a good reason to be scared of heights. He says, the Lord promised, lo, I am with you always. You get it? 
King James. Anyway, what do we do as a result of all the implications that Jesus says, I will build my church? What do we do? We look at the mission that he gave us. We look at what did he say we are to be about. And so we've got three things here that we say, all right, as a result of all that, what do we do? We focus on three things. First is his mission. His mission. What is his mission? To what? To go and what? Make disciples of all nations. That is the mission of Jesus Christ. His mission is that we continue that. To see unbelievers become believers. To to not just fill out decision cards or not just walk an aisle or not just pray a certain prayer in a certain order, but to really see lives changed. Jesus said his mission was to seek and to save those who are lost. So our mission is to make disciples who believe and follow him, Jesus, in the everyday stuff of life. Everyday stuff of life. That's his mission, and that's what has been handed off to the church. Now, sadly, there are many churches who will claim they're following that mission, but will live by another one. Instead of the mission of making disciples, it is the mission of survival. Or maybe it's the mission of historical preservation. Or maybe the mission of, of making sure that, that we, we sort of keep our position and so on. I don't want anything getting out of control here. Let's not take any chances, whatever. You see that in a lot of different churches. And as individuals, we often do the same thing. It's not just churches somewhere, it's us. Because despite knowing what these verses say, despite knowing that we are called, all of us are called to make disciples, we often live individually in the everyday stuff of life by a different mission, don't we? It's the mission of climbing the ladder or of getting a little more, of making sure I'm taken care of, or of letting someone else do what God has called me to do. Those are some of the missions that we live by. And yet the mission of the Lord has not changed. He said to the very end of the age, that means until I return, this is the mission. Period. Plain and simple. To make disciples. Now there are lots of reasons why we don't do this. You see in verse 17, they weren't sure about it. Some doubted. They'd seen all the incredible stuff and yet some doubted. Sometimes we doubt as well. Sometimes we're preoccupied. Sometimes we're scared. Sometimes we're just overwhelmed or we're apathetic. We just don't care. Or maybe we're ignorant. We're not sure exactly what we're supposed to be doing. Or maybe we're just plain selfish. We never lift our eyes up to see the people that God has put in front of us to say, go and make disciples. But our mission is very simple, to make disciples. Nothing more, nothing less, until Jesus returns, make disciples. That is not just the mission of our church, but it is the mission that God has given to me for my life individually. Not just as a pastor, but as a Christian, my mission is to make disciples. And the same is true for you if you're a believer in Christ. Secondly, his mission requires his message. These are all going to start with M. You should be so, so impressed. If you grew up in a Baptist church, and if you didn't, this you're like, what? Okay. But if you grew up in a Baptist church, this is good. This is really, really good. I'm <clears throat> making sure you're awake. Um, his message, right? Now, here, the message is not. The message is not, we're all good people, and we want you to be good people, too. You know what, if we could just, can't we all just get along? You know, let's just be good people out in our neighborhoods and everybody else will be a good person. And okay, well, that's, that's really the message of Jesus, right? Is just be nice to people and just be kind and, and, you know, and say some good things and stay off that guy's lawn and stuff. And, you know, let's, let's just be nice people. That's what the mission of Je- the message of Jesus is. But unfortunately, that's not it. The message of Jesus, I'm going to give you four words this morning. You just write them down to kind of in the blanks. They're not or in the blank space there. Okay, they're not going to be on the, on the outline. I'm going to be on the screen. Four words that the message of Jesus, the message of the whole Bible boils down to. The first is creation. 
If you can remember these things and you can remember how this works and you can kind of put this together, I guarantee you, you can begin to talk with people about Jesus. You can talk with people about Jesus. You remember these four words and begin to understand, apply them to their situation, their story. Okay, the first is creation. Here's what I mean. God made everything good and perfect. And because he made everything good and perfect, we can trust him. He knows what he's doing. He's wise. He's better than us. And in God's act of creation, we get the answers to questions like, who am I? And why am I here? And where does my worth come from? Because who am I? Well, I'm a creation of God. That changes things a little bit. Why am I here? I was made to glorify God. And where does my worth come from? My worth comes from the fact that God loved me and so he created me. People are asking those questions, are they not? They may not put them in those terms, but it is still relevant. The creation part of this story and this message is still relevant because people are obsessed with knowing their origin and their purpose in life. They're obsessed with it. They want to know where they've come from. You see all the DNA commercials? You see all the stuff? Send in. What it, I forget what they are. Send it in. And we'll tell you, you've always thought you were German and now you're French and you're not happy about it or whatever. I don't know. But you've always thought you were these things. People are obsessed with that stuff, and they're obsessed with their purpose. I talked with a young lady yesterday. We were talking about different things, and we, we identified a person. We just, boy, we just really hope that they can find their purpose because it matters. In one way or another, people, everybody, they're trying to find something, someone who will help them to understand who they are and why they're here. And are they worth anything? Creation answers all those questions. Jesus, it says, was in the beginning, and through him and by him and in him all things were made. Jesus answers the question through creation. Secondly, you not only have creation, but you have the fall. And this is where sin comes in. Adam and Eve were created to live perfectly in a perfect world, but they didn't believe God, and so they sinned, and death is the result. They sinned, and immediately they felt shame. What did they try to do? They tried to hide. They're back in the bushes somewhere, and oh, we're not sure. Here comes God, and we've got to hide from him. Shame and guilt and so on. They sinned, and immediately they started looking for someone or something to blame. God shows up to Adam, and he says, what did you do? And he points to his wife. She made me do it. The guy goes down the line. He goes to Eve. What did you do? She points to the serpent. That thing made me do it. Serpent didn't have anybody to blame. He was, you know, it's just the way it is. But isn't that true? We're looking for some reason, something to blame all of our problems on. They sinned and everything was different. The world isn't right, is it? Something is off. Something is wrong. More terror attacks yesterday. Something's going on. Things are not the way they should be and everybody in the world knows it. You don't have to be a church person to know something's wrong with our world today. Everybody knows it. And everybody in their own lives, they can identify some key things, some problems, some things that have happened that create the brokenness they now experience. Everybody knows something's wrong. What's the answer? Well, we're reluctant to say that it's sin, that sin is the cause of all the brokenness in the world, but even people who aren't Jesus people will say, well, there are certain things that people do that aren't right and they cause problems. What are they identifying? Sin. I mean, I'd ever call it that, but that's what they're identifying. We know the problem is the fall. Sin has entered the world. Now, it could end right there, just so you know. The message of Christ could end right there. Creation and then fall, and you guys are on your own. Good luck. The third word is redemption. Redemption. 
Which is why I think that song that Danny and Clint led just a minute ago is so important because it encompasses the whole story. We're going to sing it again just kind of as our anthem in a few minutes. Redemption, the story does not end with destruction and death. It doesn't end there. Because Jesus has always been God's redemption plan. Jesus came to earth and he succeeded where everyone before him and everyone after him has failed. He perfectly trusted God. He perfectly submitted to the will of God the Father. And he came to rescue and deliver us out of the destruction and death that sin has caused. He is the solution for every problem. He is the answer for every question. People today are looking for solutions to their problems. They're looking for answers to their questions. And they're looking everywhere for them. And it's kind of like the old song. What is it? They're looking for love in what? All the wrong places. Y'all didn't think I was that old, did you? Uh-huh. That's probably hell. I got you. I listen to Willie 102 every once in a while. A classic country. But they are, aren't they? They're looking for solutions, looking for answers all over the place, right? But every Savior, every solution, every answer, every person that we seek out to solve the problems that are going on inside of us, to solve the brokenness that's in us, everyone fails. Why? Because they can't address the real problem. What's the real problem? Sin. They can't cleanse us from our shame and from our guilt. They can't make us new. Only Jesus can do that. And we search through all these other things. And the solution, the answer is redemption through Jesus Christ. People are asking for redemption. They're asking for solutions. They're asking for answers. And we hold the treasure that says, here it is. The fourth word is restoration. You could also think of this as recreation. Not recreation. It's different. Recreation. Restoration or recreation. So we we come full circle. Jesus rose from the dead and was given new life, a new body. And he is the beginning, the Bible tells us, of the restoration that God has been promising all along. And one day, one day, in God's timing and his alone, he will send Jesus back to earth to fully restore this planet and us and we as God has designed it to be from the very beginning. He is the beginning of that restoration. One day he'll make all things new. A new heaven, a new earth, it says in the scripture. Everything made new. He is now in the business of recreating people to be who they were always meant to be. And he is preparing for that day when he returns to earth to restore us all to who we were originally designed to be. And this is important in our world today too. Because people have a deep longing for change. Why? Because we know something isn't right. We know things are broken. We want them to be better. We want things to change. And that's the message of Jesus. I mean, think about all that the message of Jesus addresses in our world today. He makes all things new and better, and one day he'll do that once and for all. So there you have the message. Think through it. Meditate on it. Ask the Lord to drive it deep into your heart. And then finally... You've got his methods. This is why I say I don't have a vision for the church other than what Jesus has already given us. Jesus told us in Matthew 28 to make disciples. And then he tells us to go and do that naturally. He just says, as you go, just just go and make disciples, just with the people that you're around. Parents, let me tell you, if you're looking, you know, God's never put any people in my path to make disciples. I don't know who to minister to. Look in your home. You got people, people there, don't you? Let me tell you, grandparents, well, I don't know, maybe God can't use me anymore. I tell you what, I can't do what I used to do. And so you got grandkids, make disciples. 
You go to work every day, do what you can to make disciples. And how do we do that? Well, just as naturally as we can. We just simply listen and learn their stories like Jesus did. Go and read the Gospels and look at how Jesus did it. He shows up to the woman at the well. And she's, she's talking there and he, he asks some questions and he listens and he gets to know her. And then he addresses her issues. Jesus did it by learning stories and by listening and then addressing the heart issue. Exactly what they needed. And so you just go naturally. You mix with your daily activities. The idea that, you know what, this is a person in front of me. These are people in front of me that God has said, make disciples of these people. And you do it very intentionally. Jesus says, baptize them, teach them. We have a purpose. We're not just trying to make nice people in the world. We really are trying to make disciples of Jesus Christ whose lives have been changed forever. To see them not just become nice little Christians, but to see them radically changed by the power of the gospel. And we do it, he says, continually. He says, I'm with you to the end of the age. It never ends. That is our mission. That is our goal. It does not end. It's not a church program. It's not an event. It's a lifestyle. And it's the foundation of our ministry. And so let me encourage you this week. You've got those things written down there. His mission, his message, his methods. This week, maybe you put a little box around that, a little circle, and you say, you know what? This week, this is what I am called to be about for whomever I encounter. I am to be about his mission. So I'm going to open my eyes this week. Lord Jesus, open my eyes to the mission you've placed in front of me. Lord, I'm going to be about your message. God, fill me with the message of Scripture, that message of creation, fall, redemption, restoration, to see how it fits to answer the questions people are asking. And Lord, show me your methods. Help me to listen. Help me to care. Help me to love. Help me to present Jesus to these people. You don't have to stand on a street corner to make that happen. Because somebody is right there in your little cubicle area. Somebody is right there in your office. Somebody is right there in your factory. Somebody is right there in your home. Somebody is right there in a line at Walmart. Whomever it may be that the Lord has put in your path. And you can say, I'll use his methods. I'll listen. I'll love. I'll learn their story. None of this is for guilt and shame this morning. Conviction, sure. But not for guilt and shame. To draw us closer to the heart of God, sure. Because ultimately what we need to pray for is that God would give us a heart for people. We have a wonderful church. I'll tell you that. Nancy and I, we just bought a house. We're not planning to go anywhere because of how awful this church is. We love you and we're excited to be here. I am truly honored to be your pastor. But I do know that we've got some things that we need to just make sure that we continue to do, don't we? Let's continue to make disciples. People need Jesus. They are lost, dying, going to hell without Him. And they need Jesus. And not only that, but they need the answers to their questions right now that He provides. And we hold it in our hands. This week, His mission, His message, His methods. Let's go be that for our community. Let's pray together. Just for a second there, with your head bowed and eyes closed, you may not be a praying person. I'm not going to ask you to pray out loud or anything, but maybe there's something that the Lord has kind of put on your heart and maybe there's a response you need to have this morning, a prayer that you need to pray to the Lord right now, a prayer of commitment, a prayer of submission, a prayer of confession, a, a prayer that just calls out and says, Lord Jesus, I need you. Would you pray that this morning, whatever it is?
Maybe our church is on your heart and you just pray for the for our church, Elm Grove. Lord, make us to be the, the kind of church that always stays with that mission to make disciples. What is it that your prayer needs to be this morning? I'll be down here in just a second. As these guys lead us, I'd be happy to pray with you, talk with you. Stick around a little bit after the service. And we can talk a little bit. Pray with you some more. What does Jesus need to do in your life today? Lord Jesus, have your way in us. We thank you for the wondrous mystery, as the song says, what has now been revealed to us to show us who you are, what you have done, and who we can be in you. So Lord, live your life through us this week. Your mission, your message, your methods. Live through us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's just stand together as we close with this song.